everybody. Uh, it'll be great to actually see you again, but uh, in the meantime, we wanted to just offer uh, a few songs of worship, and so we want to uh, encourage you just to join us in worship wherever you are. If you've got more than one of you there, uh, uh, you can all all join us. Um, Birch is, when we're done recording this, going to post underneath where you can find some of the lyrics, but we're doing a couple of hymns, um, and then a couple of also the more modern hymns. I think you all know them well. Um, we're excited to have you have you join us. Um, before we start, I want to read Psalm 65. I'm going to read the whole chapter. David writes, Praise is due to you, O God in Zion, and to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house and the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds, you answer us with righteousness. O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers and blessings its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows close themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. I was struck this morning reading that in verse 11. It says, you crown the year with your bounty. Well, certainly 2020 doesn't feel like a year he's crowned with his bounty. But as we sing this morning, I want us to reflect on the bounty that we've been promised. This first song, My Savior's Love. The chorus is, how marvelous, how wonderful my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Would you join us as we sing?
Good morning. We're continuing our series here on the Apostles' Doctrine. Last week we looked at the Apostles' Gospel from Acts chapter 10 with God's message to Cornelius. And this morning we're going to look at the Apostles' Baptism. But I want to review a little bit from last week where we talked about the Apostles' Gospel very clearly given in this message to Cornelius. And we looked at five basic points here from this story. That if we love the king, we have to reflect the king's heart. Uh, there can be no bias in our hearts to humans made in the image of God. And he loved us when we were unworthy, and we need to extend God's grace toward anyone and everyone. The second thing we looked at is, if we love the king, we must have experienced the king's message ourselves. Is this the gospel you have trusted in and believed? And we also need to be encouraged that the same gospel that saved Cornelius is the same gospel that saves us. And the same message that has the power of God to salvation is the same message we have today. What they had is what you have. The third thing we saw is that if we love the king, we must know the king's message. Do you know the king's message? Uh, this here in Acts chapter 10 was the clearest example of the apostles proclaiming the the kerygma, the proclamation of what God has done to reconcile sinners to himself and our response to that. In fact, we mentioned that that's how Mark in his gospel lays out um, the order of his gospel according to these uh, true facts. This is how true peace comes in Jesus' reigning. The fourth thing we looked at is if we love the king, we must love the king's message. Uh, if you love the king's message, you know the king's message, you pass on the king's message, and you understand the uh, the truth of God's message as it was borne out by the apostles. And there is a pattern of the apostles preaching of Messiah, and it's a consistent drumbeat of these things, that the prophet's words of the Messiah coming are fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. He was born as a descendant of King David. He died according to the scriptures to deliver us from this present evil age. He was buried. He rose again bodily on the third day according to the scriptures. And he is exalted today at the right hand of God as the Son of God and the judge of the living and the dead. He is Lord and Savior and he will come again as judge of all the earth. And then the responsibility is to turn to him alone and trust his words for the forgiveness of sins to be rescued. And he will change your whole life by his spirit who he will put within you. And then we saw if we love the king, we have to trust the king's power with this message. We saw that the Holy Spirit was working on both sides of the street, so to speak, with Peter, the messenger, and the receiver of the message, Cornelius. And we need to remember the power of this gospel message is not in us and our persuasive words, but it is in the message itself and our dependence on God as we are working with God who is already working. So we engage and participate with what God is already doing. I challenge at the end of the teaching in Acts chapter 10 to be able to articulate the summary of the gospel according to the apostles proclaiming a Messiah. And then ask ourselves, does this gospel control our lives? And can we articulate our own story of how we came to Christ ourselves with the
gospel and how it confronted us and our testimony of how this is what we rely on and how it's changed us so that we can share it with others. One of the best ways we can do that is by writing it out, drilling it in our heads and sharing it by weaving in the story of how God gave us new life. And I gave you some prompts at the end of that to finish these sentences. There was a time in my life when, and fill in your story before Christ, and then one day when God confronted you with sin and then the remedy, the Savior, and then one day. And then when I understood Jesus died for my sins and rose again to give me new life, I, what did you trust? How did that change you? And then since I know Jesus, I, and fill in the blank. And then to ponder this, because it really makes the message of the gospel hit home. If I had never met Jesus, I, and I really challenge families, parents, do this uh, for your testimonies and share this with your kids. Your kids need to know the mighty works of God. How God has passed on His power from your generation to their generation. They need to know their stories. They need to be able to tell their grandkids one day what Jesus did for their great-grandparents. Train them in this together. And grandparents, be involved in this. Your grandkids need to know, need to know your story. So, with that review, I'd like us to go back to Acts chapter 10, because when they believed, in Acts chapter 10 and verse um, 44, the scripture says, While Peter spoke these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. And they of the circumcision, the Jewish brothers who came with Peter, which believed, were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then answered Peter, Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? So here we have the apostles' baptism. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord, then prayed or asked they him to tarry or stay certain days. From these scriptures we see that the pattern of after somebody believed the gospel of Jesus Christ and received the message of God, meaning they have accepted what God had done for them in total faith to make them righteous through the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ for their sins and his resurrection for their new life. They're baptized. They're commanded to be baptized. And let's ask this first question. Why? Why is that? Why was that the apostles' practice? And so I'd like to go back to the very familiar passage in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 16 and look at what's commonly called Jesus' great commission. Matthew 28 and verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All power is given to me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach or make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. In that passage, in that command, Jesus said, I have been given all authority. 
And then he gave them a command. And grammatically, the passage is structured where the specific command is to make disciples, make followers and learners of Jesus. That's the command. And then there are three parts that support that command that tell how that is fleshed out. And the three parts are, of course, they are to go. They are to make disciples by going. Now, who are they make disciples from? From who? How are they make disciples? How far were they supposed to go? And the answer is to all the nations, to go to the nations with the gospel message. And Peter had to learn this with Cornelius, the Gentiles and beyond. The second thing they were to do is they were to baptize those who believed this gospel message. And then the third thing they were to do, they were to teach the disciples to obey Jesus' commands. So that's how they were to make disciples. So this is why Peter, in Acts chapter 10, after these Gentiles believed, disciples are made. That's the first part of the process here. Then he's going to baptize those who believe. He's seen the Holy Spirit come upon them. And then he's going to stay then for a few days and teach them the, the, the basic principles of the faith, teach the disciples uh, how to obey Jesus' commands. So that's how they were to make disciples. And baptism, you see, is that center point, going to the nations with the gospel message, baptizing those who believe, teaching the disciples to obey Jesus' commands. That's how we are to make disciples. You might ask then, okay, well, who is baptized? Who is baptized? Well, the scriptural pattern over and over is whoever believes. The believer is baptized. Not an infant, a believer. And then the second question under who baptizes is, or who is, who is baptized is, begs the question, well, who administers the baptism? Traditionally in churches, it's been the clergy, those who are recognized as a pastor or a leader in the church, but honestly, if we're going to be really honest with the text, that's a, a tradition that's been projected on the church. Really, whoever has the authority to baptize is the one who has the authority to make disciples. And who has the authority to make disciples? Jesus has given every believer, as a priest of Jesus, every believer has been given authority to make disciples. So whoever has been commissioned to make disciples, all believers, have the authority to administer administer baptism as I understand it. That's why I, uh, um, I um, invite uh, fathers to baptize their, their own sons during our baptism. Uh, the person who leads that individual to Jesus or has uh, had been a major influence for the gospel in that person's life, I think it's a wonderful thing when that individual is the one who is given the privilege and honor of baptizing uh, that new convert. So who does it? Well, the believer is the one who receives it, the ones who believe. And the one who administered it is whoever has been commissioned to make disciples, which is all of Jesus' followers. Where is it done? Where is baptism done? Well, it's done in a short period of time after that person has believed on Jesus Christ. What it means to follow Jesus Christ and to, and to be born again, if they can understand that, then there is no reason to withhold baptism from them. They understand what baptism means. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. Let me just give you a few examples of the occurrences of baptism uh, in the book of Acts, where we see the gospel expanding. In Acts chapter 2, when the gospel is preached by Peter, and verse 38 
They say, after Peter preaches the message, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. For the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day they were added to them about 3,000 souls. So after they received the message of the gospel, trusting in it, in, it, in it alone, they are baptized and they are added to the body of believers, the church. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. You see right there again this these three parts of going and making disciples by uh, making disciples by going, by baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, and into the, the church of Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, uh, you see them uh, obeying Jesus' commands of what it means to love one another as he gave them that night uh, in the Last Supper in John 13 through 17. So that's where it's done. Uh, you also see this with the... Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, a few chapters over, verses 35 through 40. <clears throat> scriptures say, after Philip uh, preached, he opened his mouth and began the same scripture and preached to him Jesus. And as they went on their way, they came to a certain water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What does hinder me to be baptized? And you see down in verse 38, they stopped the chariot, stand still. They both went down to the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Right away after you believe. Cornelius' household, we saw in Acts chapter 10. You could look at the household of the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16, verse 31 through 34, and see the same thing. Just a few more chapters, Acts 16 and verse 31. And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved in your house. And they spoke to him the word of the Lord. So made sure they understood uh, here into all that were in the house. And he took them the same hour of that night and washed their stripes there where they were had been lashed by whips. Um, the Philippine jailer did. And then he was baptized, he and all his, immediately. And they rejoice. So where is it done? Uh, there is not necessarily a, a time period that is given between your believing in Jesus and your baptism. Uh, they should correspond very quickly. Um, if 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 their uh, salvation is genuine and real, why would you withhold baptism from them? So that's where it's done. How is it done? How is it done? Well, the word baptize or baptizo means to dip. Um, it has seems to be from the pattern of scripture an immersion um, in church history where there wasn't enough water or a place where they uh, didn't have enough water uh, immediately at hand to be baptized like a river. What they would do is they would pour water over that person. And the idea is a, a saturation, an immersion, 
there. And that's traditionally the pattern, and it seems to be the pattern in Scripture here of how baptism was done. You say, why is it so important? It just seems so weird. You have a belief in your heart, right? And so why do you need a physical, tangible thing like water? What's so significant about that? Well, um, there is a symbolism in it. Well, the first thing I want you to understand why it's important is this. And Jesus gave this commission in Matthew 28. He says, baptizing them. And he doesn't just say baptizing them. He says, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He lists the three members of the Trinity that have always enjoyed fellowship forever. The Father, Son, and Spirit. Perfect fellowship. That have the, uh, that have the created the universe together. That provided our salvation together. And so when we ask why baptism is important, because it is done in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. You say, well, what does that mean? Why is that important? Well, what he is saying there is that we are to baptize those who have received the authoritative message of the king. They are to be baptized in the authority of the Godhead. That's a big thing. What they are, what they are signifying by that is that the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, Eternal Father, Eternal Son, Eternal Spirit, have claimed them, have a claim on their lives. And... Because of the gospel message of through Jesus Christ, what he did on the cross for our sins, he has reconciled us to God. They have a relationship to the Godhead. So he has not only claimed us, we are committed to him. And God is committed to us. He has staked his own son's life on us. And we are to give our lives to him. So it's done in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. This is why baptism is important. But that's not all. What does baptism mean? Well, when you're baptized, you are identifying with Jesus and his message. Not in a ho-hum kind of way, but what you are saying is, I am staking my eternal life on what Jesus has done. I have died to sin on the cross with Jesus. He paid for my sins. My old man has died on the cross with him. My old life is dead. And I have been raised with Jesus when he walked bodily out of that tomb. I am alive with Jesus in righteousness. I have turned from my old way of life to the new way of life in Jesus. What's interesting is in the book of Acts, more times than not, it's not called Christianity. It's called the way. The way. There was something significant about a person who understood that God had committed to them in the message of the gospel and they committed their lives to Jesus. There is a new way of life. And so your baptism is identifying with that. You might say, well, can't I just believe that in my heart? Well, you can, but you're not obeying Jesus. Here's what you need to understand. Your baptism is like a marriage ceremony in the ring. You didn't need that marriage ceremony to commit your lives to your spouse. But it is a public confession that before witnesses, you are committing your life to that individual and that individual only. And so you say your vows, you give your pledges, right? You have the ring that you put uh, on the uh, on the finger of your of your spouse there. And it is a is a public pledge. All these things identify and all these things profess something that is should be already settled inwardly. 
And so it is with baptism. But you not only identify with Jesus and his message, and here's something else we need to understand. In a very uh, individualistic, independent culture, we identify with a new community, a new community, a new family. Here's the thing. You do not baptize yourself. I don't walk out into the water after having believed and dip my knees and come out of the water myself. No. The public pattern in Scripture is that individuals were baptized. They didn't baptize themselves. So it's not done alone. And that individual baptizes them. And when you come out of the water, you come out of the water to a new community of believers, your new primary family. And you recede into the local church family. The other thing that baptism is important for because of what it means is that it reinforces and it's your public confession of turning to God in faith and repentance and identifying with Jesus and joining in the mission of obedience to all Jesus commanded, including the command to contribute to making more disciples and expanding Jesus' family. This is what it means. In fact, it's so important that Paul lists our baptism, which represents our immersion in Christ and our immersion into the body of believers, our one baptism. He identifies that in Ephesians chapter 4 as one of the foundations of our faith. In Ephesians chapter 4, he says, There is one body and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Paul lists that as part of our foundation of our faith. What else does your baptism mean? Well, let me expand on what I've said already with Paul's words in the letter to the Romans in Romans chapter 6, where Paul talks about the new life in the Spirit. And the shedding of the old life that was done at the cross and receiving a new life by faith. And Paul says this in Romans chapter 6, verse 3. Know ye not that so many of us, as were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death? The old man, when we go under the water, pictures the old man, the old nature, the old way, um, as being crucified with Jesus. Jesus died for our sins. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Or if we've been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that hereafter we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dies no more. Death has no more dominion or control over him. For in that he died, he died to sin once. But in that he lives, he lives to God. That's what our baptism represents. That's pretty powerful. That's pretty deep. And that governs all of our Christian life, doesn't it? From beginning to end. That governs our Christian life. Remember your baptism. Remember what it pictures. You are dead to sin and you are alive to Christ. Paul says this in, in Colossians uh, chapter 2 as well. In Colossians 2 and verse 12. 
He says, buried with him in baptism, wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who has raised him from the dead. Baptism, again, connected with the message of the gospel, what it pictures, our public profession, like that marriage ceremony and the ring there. Folks, this is what's true of me now. But there's even more. Peter uses your baptism as a reminder of the victory of Christ over the darkness and the unseen realm. The victory of Christ over over, uh, what had kept you in bondage and the beings, the dark unseen realm, the beings that kept you in bondage in your sin. And Peter says, remember, in your trials, in your persecution, when you are coming face to face with the evil one, remember your baptism and the victory of Christ represented in your baptism. He says in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21, the like figures, he's given an analogy here, comparison, where, where to baptism does all, even baptism does also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is gone into heaven, and as of, at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject to him. Friends, you might not have realized this when you were baptized, because I didn't. But when I came out of the water, that was a picture that Jesus had victory over angels and authorities that have been allowed to be unleashed on this earth in our sin. The dark ones, not the good ones. Jesus has authority. Never forget your baptism. So baptism isn't something that's just to be ignored or given a token nod as just a religious um, symbol here. But it is significant because of its pledge and its meaning. So I got some questions for you. Have you been baptized as a believer, scripturally? Not as an infant, not when your parents took you to the church as an infant and the priest or the the, the pastor sprinkled water on you. Not as a formality, but as a sincere believer of Jesus Christ and his message and his claim on your life. If not, you need to obey his command. You're not in fellowship or in relationship with God here. A, a, a vibrant relationship, abundant life. If you're not obeying one of these very first basic commands, you need to obey his command. And secondly, if so, does it play into your everyday call to forsake and follow Christ? Maybe you never thought of it that way. But Paul does in Romans 6 and Colossians 2 and Peter does in 1 Peter 3 to remind us of the victory of Christ in your life. Victory in Jesus. A reminder that I have turned to Jesus by His grace, by faith in what His Word has said. I am a new creation. That needs to be pounded into our heads every day. Martin Luther said we have to beat the gospel into our heads. Baptism is a way to do that. Reminds us of these things. And that's why it's a wonderful thing to gather around the waters and see new believers be baptized. It reminds us of God's call that we forsake all and we follow Christ. And brothers and sisters, for those of you who have been baptized as believers, knowing what you know now, what would you say to yourself that day you went beneath the waters as your testimony?
It's been our custom to have those who are baptized uh, read a written out testimony of how they came to the Lord Jesus Christ and what this baptism signifies and what it means. So they have a clear understanding. What would you have reminded yourself on that day, knowing what you know now, about your baptism? As I look back, I was baptized as an 11-year-old. I had professed faith in Christ as a, as a young child and understood the gospel. I waited till I was 11 uh, to be baptized. And I was baptized in the Schofield Pond in Oakdale, Connecticut. And there as I went down to Schofield Pond, it was one of the um, our little town in Connecticut's uh, public beaches. And there were people there that summer laying out on, out on the beach, enjoying a nice Sunday afternoon. And a bunch of us from our church in, in uh, Oakdale, Cornerstone Baptist Church, went down to that beach, uh, away from the people a little bit to give them some space. And about four or five of us were baptized. I was one of those. I remember the blue jeans I wore that day, and uh, I don't remember what shirt I was wearing. I walked out in the water. I had to go out pretty far because the water was relatively shallow. And I remember going under the water and coming out. I knew that I was professing Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior and letting the public know that that was true in my heart. I knew what I was doing as a public confession. But I can't say... That was beaten into my head every day that your baptism is what God has done to you and is continuing to do to you. That you are dead to sin and alive to Christ. And so if I had to answer that question, what would I have reminded myself about my baptism? I would need to remind myself that every day I need to remember my baptism. Not because it saved me but because it testifies and bears witness to what it signifies. The saving power of Jesus Christ. He saved me from sin. He raised me to new life. And He imported me into His family, adopted me as His child, and united me with fellow believers. So if you know what you know now, what would you say to yourself that day you went beneath the waters? as your testimony. God bless you. Next week, we'll look at the third part of the Apostles' Doctrine and look at the two competing principles, the two competing uh, truths, foundational truths of the world and the foundational truths of God's Word and the Apostle Doctrine that fights against that. The new way in Colossians chapter 2. Thanks for your time today with us.